This week, I want to start a new series that asks the question, is the New Testament really opposed to women? Now, at first glance, there are certain passages that would seem to suggest this, but is it really the case? Now, to answer the question, we need to first look at what life would have been like for a wife in the first century. Then in the next two episodes, we're going to go deeper into these more controversial passages. Now, if we're going to understand what it was like to be a wife in the first century, we have to first understand how the ancient family worked. And that's going to be the focus of this week's episode. What are the more important aspects we have to understand about life in the ancient world. And this is a point I'm sure I've covered before, and and I'll cover many, many more times in this podcast, is this idea of the individual. Now, when we think about ourselves today in the modern world, we we think about, we have this concept of the individual. You know, we think about uh, an individual identity. We think about our own uh, personal um, idea of who we are and uh, our personal preferences or, uh, you know, just, just the sense that we are an individual being within this ocean of people in which we live. And this is a very modern, very Western idea. It really sort of stems out of modern, the sort of modern liberal Western value that places individual value on every person. Every person is created equally under God with their own individual characteristics, endowed with their own rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and, and all of these values that we just simply take for granted. And so we really just we just swim in this idea that we are individual beings. Uh, you know, the question we ask ourselves is, you know, who are you? What is it about you that is unique? And we, we sort of seek for that sort of individualistic idea. But this is really quite new, at least in the context of human history. It's a, it's a very new sort of idea. Now, it's grounded in the Judeo-Christian worldview, but it's still new in the sense that it's kind of the default setting that we have in the way that we understand ourselves. Now, when we think about the New Testament, of course, we're going back to a world 2,000 years ago, which thought very differently. Um, The way that you understood yourself in the ancient world, it was never a question of who are you? The question was always, whose are you? Uh, What is your community? Who is the group that you belong to? Because if we, if we understand who your group is, then we're going to understand who you are. Because what we know about you or, or the sort of person you are is going to gravitate towards the group that you're part of. And so what we understand about your group is going to tell us who you are. It sort of, you know, it sort of takes one to know one uh, sort of idea. Uh, and so if you want to get a sense of who a person was, well, the first group that you're going to look at is their family. And of course, we see this uh, throughout the Bible and any other ancient texts where when you introduce yourself or if you're introduced or if you're uh, sort of called out, um, you're known as who you are and your father's, who your father is. Think about, we talked about Peter, for example, um, you know, we, Simon, son of John. Uh, this idea that you are uh, your father's child. And so if we know your father, then we know your family. We know really then who you are. Now, there are other uh, identifying groups that you can be part of, your community, uh, your, um, your city that you come from, or maybe an association that you belong to. But really your primary identity marker is your family, 
you are such and such the son or the daughter of such and such, whoever your father was. And, and that really is everything we need to know then about who you are. Now, what this tells us, most importantly, is that the family is the central unit of society. This is the most fundamental uh, aspect of, the, of, the, of this group idea. There's lots of different groups you can be part of, but the most fundamental group that you belong to will always remain the family. And so family becomes, or, or really is, the central unit of society. The way that the Roman world really understood itself was a collection of lots of families. It was uh, families all sort of working together, ideally in harmony, to f- create this this empire. But even down at the city level, and this even goes back to sort of the Greek uh, the Greek world as well, this idea that uh, the cities are really just a collection of families. The families are the individual units of the society. You know, again, we think about uh, an, a, an individual person as the unit of society, whereas for these guys, they thought much more in the sense of the family is the individual unit. So each of these individual units are responsible to themselves to be healthy, to be um, to to be functioning, to be working well, uh, not just for their own good, but also for the broader good of the city to which they belong. So in this sense, the family is a little bit like the mini state. The way that the empire runs is that at the head of the empire you have the emperor, but he presents himself as the father. He doesn't, he doesn't present himself as a king. He's the father who looks after the family, and the family is the Roman Empire. And so this idea goes back to the really, again, back to this sort of very ancient idea amongst the Romans and amongst other societies that the family is absolutely central. And so the, if the family is the unit, then the person who's in charge of that unit is always going to be the father. And so then when we try to, um, the way that we're going to unite this this empire is going to be around this idea of, of a family. The Roman Empire is just one great big family with the emperor as its father, as its protector, as its provider, and, and all of the roles that the father takes on. So then the family ideologically is the central unit. Uh, it's, 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 you're part of a family. And so that is your most basic core identity, this group to which you belong. But the family is also a practical group as well. It's not just that you're ideologically part of this identity group, but you're also part of this practical group which is the group that's going to provide for your basic needs. Now, we've talked a lot about uh, how difficult things were in the ancient world. Uh, We've talked about uh, how much of a struggle it was just for for the basics of survival. And so your responsibility, one of your key tasks in life is just to simply survive. Now, how do you do this? Well, you have to earn bread. You have to work to earn the food that you eat. And in order to do this, everybody has to be working. Everybody has to be all hands on deck in order for the family to just to simply survive, to, to have enough resources to, to be able to function. And so therefore, the family becomes the business. 
Now, again, we think about in this modern world where I've got four kids, for example, and they're going to grow up and they're going to go off and do all of their own different careers and start their own families and have their own individual units. And that's that's normal. That's what I would expect from them to sort of pursue their own interests and desires and their own careers and so forth. But again, that's a very new idea. The idea in the ancient world is that the family business is the family business. You will work in the family business. This business is the one that is going to provide for you uh, until you, as you grow up. And then once you're old enough to begin to work for the family business, which is usually uh, sort of around the ages of eight to 10 years old, now you're going to contribute back to the business as well, because the business is the one that's going to provide for you. Um, and you're going to provide back to the others that have been working for you as well. So the whole family is working together for the single goal of survival. Now, again, you know, if we come back to uh, Simon, son of John, that we spoke about a couple of weeks ago, we find him being a fisherman. Now, what was, why was he a fisherman? Well, because his father was a fisherman. Think about uh, John and James, the, the brothers that were sons of Zebedee. Zebedee was a fisherman. They were working in the family business because that's what you do. The very few families that have the resources to send their kids off to school, well, that's pretty rare. And those kids are only, only going to come back and work in public life like their fathers and carry on the family name in, the public, in public affairs. But that's pretty rare. Every, everyone else is going to work in the family business. They're going to learn the trade from their father. They're going to be doing the same thing that their father and their grandfather and all of the generations that have gone before them have done. Uh, so this is just what's expected then of the kids. And therefore the family is the company. The family is the business to the extent that the house is the shop, right? Again, we have an, a modern notion of, well, I, well, so I'm a, more of us seem to be working from home now, which is maybe going back to the way things used to be. But the idea that you have your private home and then you go to work, you go to an office or a factory or wherever it is that you work, it's a separate place to where it is that you live. Uh, you have your work life and your home life, and they're two very different uh, two very different places to be, and in some cases, two different identities even um, to that extent. Uh, now, again, this is a modern idea. This is sort of post-industrial revolution where you have factories that are being built all around England. And so where you used to live and work and carry on business at home, you now go down to the factory to do your work. And so now that's the default assumption. Uh, it's just we, we don't consider our homes to be the place of production and the place of work or the office or the shop. And, and again, if you look at... Uh, ancient houses, the front of the house will often be a shop. That will be where they do their carry-on business and then behind the shop is, is where they live. It's all one and the same place. Right, so the family is the company, the house is the office or the factory, it's the place of production. Everything happens out, out of the house. So the family is the most important unit, not just because of your identity, but because of your survival. You need everybody working hard in order for us to survive. This, so everyone has an obligation to the business. Everyone has an obligation to each other. So the most important value then that you can have is piety. 
we, we talk about, you know, this idea of piety is a sort of very, very religious idea. The word itself, the Latin word pietas, it's just the sense of obligation or the duty you have towards somebody else. If you are obligated to somebody, then you show piety towards them. You show loyalty and honor to that person. So the family, again, becomes the central place that receives that piety. It's a reciprocal uh, idea, this reciprocal affection that you have for one another. Children especially are expected to show piety towards their parents at all times. Even if the children have grown up and been, even if they've been emancipated from their parents, if they've been um, adopted out to another family, they still show piety towards their parents and and especially to their father. I mean, the worst possible crime you can ever commit in the Roman world is patricide. To kill your father is really considered to be the worst possible crime that you can ever commit. So children are absolutely expected to show piety towards their parents at all times. That is just a non-negotiable. This idea of disrespecting your parents or talking back to them or uh, you know, just disrespecting them in any way this is that's a no go. You do not do not do that. I mean, it's one of the Ten Commandments. You honor your parents. This is absolutely essential in a world where the family is the central unit of the society. But at the same time, parents are expected to show that same uh, respect and obligation towards their children. The children are not just their children, but the children are their employees in this particular business setting. The children are the ones who are going to be the workers. And ultimately, in the long term, that's their retirement plan. This is a world before superannuation, uh, before the pension. So as you get too old to work, if you're still alive, someone's going to have to look after you, and that's going to be your children. Now, the way that children show ongoing uh, respect and obligation to their parents is to take care of them. Now, we saw this, you see that passage where uh, Paul's saying to, uh, to to Timothy about the widows, and he's saying that it's it's the worst possible, um, most egregious behavior when a children fail a child fails to support uh, a mother, a, a widow in, in this case. So you, you, the parents are obligated to look after their children for uh, cultural reasons, but also for practical reasons. These kids are the ones that are going to grow up to to look after them. So it's a reciprocal um, uh, respect that has to be shown. And so therefore, of course, spouses too, husbands and wives, need to show respect to one another. And what this respect looks like, well, actually we're going to cover that next week, the, the different expectations that a husband has towards a wife and vice versa. We'll, we'll cover that, but that was how you showed piety, the, the, uh, the, the respect or the, the care that you show for one another is what is socially expected of you in this case. And there's different ways that you can show your respect. The the fact that you never, 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 no family member can ever or should ever take another family member to court. Uh, If you look at courts in the ancient world, and we'll cover this in another episode, but the idea of courts in the ancient world is that they're, they're public. There's no uh, courts done behind closed doors. Everything is done out in public. It's all done out in the middle of the forum, in the middle of the city. And so if you're going to take somebody to court, everybody knows what's going on. Everyone can go and literally watch the court proceedings. 
And so if you're out there taking your brother or your parents or vice versa to court, it's not just that it's embarrassing, it is you are publicly tearing your family apart. It's you just cannot imagine something worse than that. And I suppose it'd still be a sense today if if I was to sue my parents or my siblings, it would be embarrassing. It would be like, really, that's, man, what happened to your family? They just sort of fell to pieces. Multiply that. And that's what we're dealing with in the ancient world. This is why Paul in Corinthians 6 is so disgusted. The fact that Corinthians are taking one another to court. He says, it's not just that you're going to court. Brother is going to court against his brother. I mean, how bad can it possibly get? I mean, he's asking the question, are you guys even Christians anymore? In fact, I'm sure you're not. The fact that you could do something so egregious would suggest to me that you guys just have stopped being Christians at some point in this whole thing. So it's it's a big deal. Family is absolutely essential. You're obligated to look after each other. You're obligated to respect each other and just ultimately to provide for each other. This is the this is the business. In the same in, in any business, your the best attitude you can have is to work hard for the company because you're helping everybody else, but you're also helping yourself. You're you're in, increasing your own prosperity by working hard in the company that you work for. Well, how much more in the ancient world where it's providing for your family? You are literally providing for the survival of your immediate family. And so everyone has that obligation. Everyone is involved in this. And this is the most important thing that you can and should be doing in your life. All right. So that's the big picture of this, the central importance of family. But how did it actually work? What was, what, what was the family? Uh, well, you might be surprised to find out that it's a husband and a wife and children. Well, that has never actually changed. But the big thing, the big difference, I guess, we have to understand about maybe the modern, again, Western idea of marriage as opposed to ancient marriage is the way that the marriage actually worked. Now, when we think about marriage today, we think about the, the wedding and the, 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 all the paperwork and the great ceremony, and, and it's a very formal occasion it's a very formal affair the although just the paperwork alone makes it a very um, sort of rigid idea uh, this is again quite new um, when we go back to the first century marriage was much much more informal in fact the best way to probably understand the way an ancient marriage worked would be more like a modern de facto relationship where two people are living together who've never signed any paperwork, um, they've, they've not entered into any formal agreements, they just simply live together and they share resources and maybe have children and they've sort of built a family but there's never really been any formalization of that connection. It, it's really just, uh, it's a de facto relationship. That's really the best way to understand how it worked in in Paul's time. So marriage is really more like a cohabitation. Two eligible people who've entered who've just agreed to live together. It's really just as informal as um, let's be husband and wife. Okay, we're husband and wife and, and really that's it. You've moved in together and you've sort of started your this this family scenario and that's the marriage. Now, the 
sort of the the way that the relationship works between the husband and the wife is that he is ultimately the provider. He's ultimately the protector. It's that very traditional conservative sort of uh, idea. And it's really more in the sense of maybe a patron-client relationship. Uh, we've talked about this before and we'll talk about it again, but this idea that he is he has this obligation. His, the way that he shows piety to his wife is that he protects her. He's the one who looks after and provides for her. And, and that's his role and that, that's the duty that he has. And in doing that is how he demonstrates his piety towards his wife. He is ultimately the authority over her in that way. But the reason for the marriage, you know, again, we think about marriage as this idea of two people fall in love and they just want to spend their lives together and, um, you know, we'll, we'll just grow old together and it's, we're going to have a great adventure in life and all this. And maybe along the way, we might even have children. Well, that idea, again, very new. Go back to the first century. You get married specifically to have children. It is for the production of children. Having children is the most important thing that you do. It's it's not just that you're growing the society, but you're providing workers. You're providing a, a, a support network for yourself for later in life. Children are absolutely essential. And in some cases, you marry a certain person to form fa- family alliances, to powerful families in a society will want to connect their combine their power and resources well then you marry the kids together now that is not uh, unheard of even in today's world but it was very much the case back in the ancient world where two people have sort of come into an alliance and so the way that you formalize that alliance is to marry your kids and we've actually, you know, you think about the first triumvirate, the connection of uh, of Caesar, Pompey, and Crassus, and the way that they connected, the way that they made that alliance, they formalized that alliance, was that Caesar married his daughter Julia to Pompey. So now this very, very young teenage girl becomes the wife to this mid-40s Pompey, and this is the way that they connected this this alliance that they, they this new triumvirate that they had formed now I've the way that I've talked about it so far might have indicated that the kids had some say in who they married now that's of course absurd um, all marriages are going to be arranged by parents that's standard uh, you are always going to be married to the person that your parents have deemed appropriate for you now this is um, this is a pretty standard sort of thing, and it's understandable when you consider the ages that people are getting married. Now, a girl is typically going to be married between the ages of 12 and 15, and the reason for that would be obvious that that's when she's going through puberty or she's gone through puberty and she's now old enough to have children. So therefore, she's now old enough to be married because the woman's primary function, and we're going to come to this, but her primary function is to have children. That's the one thing that she is uniquely skilled to do and the one contribution that she's ultimately going to make to the society is to provide more humans for the society and so this is it's it's much more than just 
well, she might just have children. No, no, this is what she is obligated to do. And it's the way in which she gains honor for herself by having children, by contributing to the society, contributing to the family. So she's going to be married at a very young age and she's quite obviously going to be under her, her father's authority because she's a kid. She's literally a kid at this stage. And so she'll be married to whoever, whoever her father determines for her to be married. The boys, on the other hand, they get married a little bit older. So the boys are getting married maybe in their early 20s. Um, even up into their 30s, but they're, they're, they're waiting a bit longer, particularly the wealthier boys that have been to school, they've done, some, uh, they've, they've done some military service. Now they're coming back and they're looking to start a family. And so that's, that's a fairly normal sort of age for them to, to be married. So your typical marriage is going to be between a young girl in her in teens to a guy in his 20s. So there's always going to be an age gap of maybe 10 years between the two. So just by default of that, he's already older than her and and just by virtue of that has has sort of authority over her, just, just by virtue of his age. Forget about him being the male in the family. He just by age, by virtue of his age, has that, uh, that sort of that sense of authority uh, over his wife. Now another big or another key difference that we need to recognize again we think about marriage two people fall in love and you know they just want that love grows and deepens and so forth and so forth and all of that's true and all that's wonderful but that's not the goal of marriage in the ancient world the goal is never about love and it was never the reason for the marriage in the first place and when we just said marriage was because my parents told me that I had to be married to you I don't even necessarily like you or I don't necessarily know you, but now you're my husband or my wife and so here we are. So it was never about love to begin with. The goal of marriage in the ancient world is always harmony. Uh, the Greek word homonoia or the Latin word concordia, that's always the goal. Now when you think about marriage in the context of business, that makes sense. Two people enter into a business partnership, then what their goal has to be is they have to be aligned in their outlook. They have to be seeking after the same ends, working together towards the same common good. If you don't have that outlook, then the business won't succeed. So you need that in order to make the business function. Well, if a marriage is primarily the business, then the goal has to be harmony. It has to be concordia. So this is the goal. It's working towards each other's best interests. It's working towards the, the survival, but also the provision for one another. Now, another key difference is that ancient marriage is what we would call a free marriage. Um, this, this idea that we, you know, when two people get married and they, they pull their resources together and it all sort of becomes one sort of conglomeration, uh, this is just not how it was in the ancient world. In fact, when a girl was given to her husband to be his wife, she never actually left her father. She never actually leaves her father's authority. He will always remain her ultimate authority over him. And in fact, as we're going to see, uh, we see it later on, the, the father never actually releases his authority over the children. In fact, at any time, the father has the complete right to say to his children, you're going to divorce your wife or your husband and you're going to marry somebody else. And there's nothing you can do about it. The, his, the paterfamilias's uh, um, authority is absolute until he dies. She, the children have no 
uh, say in their own lives if he's still around. He at any point can just determine whatever it is that they are going to do. So she never leaves his authority. She always remains under him. And that's especially important if she was to ever lose her husband, be widowed or be divorced. He, she will automatically go back to the father. But what this means is that when she comes into the marriage, whatever property she brings to the marriage will always be hers. She will always, that will always be her property. That will never be handed over to her husband. And so what the father will, will need to give to his daughter in marriage is a dowry. This is what is going to be her property that is going to be there for her in the event of she's ever widowed or uh, she's ever divorced and she doesn't have a father to come back to, the dowry is going to be what is going to provide for her uh, until such time as she can remarry. So all of her property remains hers, even for the entire course of the marriage. And this includes the children. The ch- any children she bears to him, to this husband, always remain his property. Anything that happens in that household belongs to him. Now, she might, um, and it was, in fact, so whatever she might earn or whatever she might um, get for herself um, through the marriage, again, that remains her property, but the children will always belong to him and they'll always bear his name. So there's this sort of, the, the, the sense of marriage is, it, it's not as determined, it's not as um, fixed or solid as what we might think about today. Uh, it means that she's always a free agent to some extent. She always has that sense of independence in the marriage. She's not absolutely, completely um, fixed and loyal to the husband. So long as she has some property of her own, she always has that ability to, to be her own agent. Now, what restricts this is that People don't have much stuff. I mean, it's one thing to say whatever property you bring to the marriage is always your property. But in most cases, there's not much property because everybody's so impoverished anyway. You're not actually bringing a whole lot to the marriage as it is. So there's not a whole lot to speak of. But whatever you do have, that always remains your things. So marriage, is, it's pretty informal as we can get a sense of. Um, to, to be married is really just to say, well, let's be married. Okay, we're married. But at the same rate, so is divorce. Divorce is as simple as, well, I don't want to be married to you anymore. Okay, well, that's it. We're done. Um, the, the marriage is over. And as I said before, the, the paterfamilias, the father, he could come along and just separate them at any time. And that's it. There's nothing that the, the kids can do about that. It's just simply you're now no longer married. And we see plenty of times where, where this used to happen. So it's a very, very informal situation. It's really, it really is just the cohabitation of two eligible people who bring their resources, but they never pull their resources together. Well, they can certainly share their resources, but the ownership of those resources always remains with the individual. And again, all of this for the purposes of survival. It's for the purposes of the business. So who are then the two key members of this? Well, Obviously, that's going to be the husband and the wife. But who are they? What are their different roles? Well, well, first of all, we, we need to look at the husband. Okay, so if the family is a business, then this would make the husband the CEO. He's the boss. He's the one who's in charge of the company. The company is the house. The business is the house. The family are the employees. 
Therefore, he's the boss. He's always going to be in charge. That's just a fact. Uh, and the reason is that he's the one who is primarily doing the work. Uh, she's always going to be having children. He's always going to be working. That is just the way things have always been or the way that things always were. Uh, and so he's the one out there doing the work. He's the public face of the company. He's the one who's um, the honor of the family is really being established by what he's doing. Uh, and so he ha- that's what he does. Um, now, this isn't <laughs> this idea that, well, he's out there free to do whatever he wants and just work and then hang out with his mates. No, you are working from sunrise to sunset. You're working hard physical labor. Uh, you know, you think about those fishermen out there working out there night and day trying to catch fish and then, you know, hauling them in and, you know, doing cleaning the fish and trying to sell them and all of the responsibility that comes along with the just working as hard as you possibly can for a basic survival. And when you think about sort of mo- at least 90% of all of the human population up until the Industrial Revolution worked on the land, basically everybody was farming. That's really, really hard work when you're doing it all by hand. And this, the work that these people are doing, it's hard physical labor. This is not enjoyable stuff. You are killing yourself on a daily basis, working seven days a week just to provide for the family. But that's your responsibility. You are breaking yourself in order for your family to survive. Uh, And so this is his responsibility, but he has piety. He has an obligation to the family to provide for them. And so the the house, his house, is his office. That's his company. That's his that's where business is ultimately done. And so the size of the house, the opulence, um, the 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 quality of its members, they're all indications of his who he is, of his of his honor. Remember, in an honor shame society, this honor is the most important thing you can have. And the way that you gain your honor is by the way that you run your household, the, the good, how good your house is, how, how nice the house is, but also how, um, how good your family is, the, the types of people that you're producing in the family. All of this is a reflection on him and his role as the CEO of the company. A good CEO will lead a successful company. The company will grow. It will make lots of money. It will employ lots of people. It will do good things. It will be an impressive company. Well, who's responsible for that? Well, clearly clearly that's the CEO. So it's going to be no different even down to the family level. The success of the family is a reflection of, of how good the boss is. So it's essential for him and for his honor to do this well. He's, he's looking after the family, not just so that they can provide and survive, but also so that he looks good and, has, and gains that honor uh, from those around him. And so as the patron and provider, he is ultimately in charge. That's, that's, but that's where he, again, where he gains his honor from, the way that he manages his household um, and just the general reputation that his family has is, uh, is a reflection of him. Now, as the boss, he has total authority and control over the family. Uh, And this, one of the prerogatives that he has is just complete sexual liberty. And we're going to sort of talk about this over the next few weeks, but he he does have total sexual liberty over the household, Um, certainly over his wife, but also over any slaves that the the family might have. Um, Really just, he is... 
it's it's one of the if the if you could even call it a prerogative, it's, or if you could call it a benefit of being the man, he has that total liberty. Um, now the real concern here, of course, is that if a, if a husband sleeps around with whoever he wants, it's not as much of a concern because he can't get pregnant. If the wife, on the other hand, is out there you know, doing what the husband's been doing, she could be getting pregnant from who knows who. And so there's no assurance that these children that have been born even belong to the father. And so this this is a really problematic. And, and so, again, we'll come back to this uh, over the next couple of weeks, but the husband has total authority, and that extends even to his ability to be sexually free um, with whomever he pleases. And, and that's okay. And that's just what is expected of the men. That's what, it's just what they can do in this, in this Greek and Roman world. Uh, the children as well, they, they just, again, they don't own anything in their own right. I said before that the, the father has authority over the children so long as he lives. As long as he is alive, he has total authority over them to the extent that they actually don't even own anything. Um, they, unless they actually go take formal legal action to be removed from his authority, they will always remain under that authority and not own anything in their own right. Now he can give them, uh, he can provide for them and, and he's expected to provide for them and give them, um, resources to, to establish their own life. But everything they have belongs to him. If, even the emperor of Rome, a 40 year old emperor of Rome if his father was still alive, his father would still have authority over him being the emperor. Now you go, this just sounds bizarre. How does this even work? Well, in a world where people are dying really young, where your life expectancy is maybe 35 years old, it means that there are, there are very few adult men who have a father still alive. If you're in your 30s as a man, you can be almost guaranteed that your father is dead. That's just So the reality of this is very is almost unheard of but the principle is true that the father always has authority over the family and the children so long as he is alive and that's just the way things were the other thing about the ancient family the roman family is that it functioned as the court so for the romans they didn't re- they didn't have a police force that's just not something that existed in the ancient world. You have courts, but courts are really for more important civic crimes, you know, attacks against the society itself. Um, individual or private matters were dealt with by the family. This is this could, down to the level of murder. Uh, if I kill somebody, a member of another person's family, then that's not something that necessarily goes to court. That's something that can be dealt with between the families, we can actually deal with that ourselves. And if it was my son that's maybe murdered somebody, a person in another family, I as the father have a, a responsibility to my honor to punish him appropriately, to deal with him appropriately because my honor's on the line here. And that's far more important than my son in this case. He's brought dishonor on the family and so I need to deal with that appropriately. And so the Romans are very happy for the family, for the father, to deal with these matters themselves. Uh, it was so, if my son's committed a crime or anyone in my family has done something to dishonor the family, my the punishment that I'm going to give them is probably going to be far worse than what the state is going to give them as well. 
And so that's perfectly fine. And what that means for the Romans then is that they know that uh, they can keep the society in line because the families are doing that for them. In an honor-shame society where it's far more important to maintain your honor, you know that the families are going to be, the fathers especially, are going to be dealing with these cases themselves. So family is everything. I can't stress that enough. It is absolutely everything to the society. And the overall responsibility then from the father is to raise the children uh, or to to raise adults. Uh, Your goal is to raise children that grow up to become adults that are going to carry on the family name, particularly if you're an, an, an elite family. It's expected that your children are going to not just carry that legacy on, but build on that as well. In fact, if you go into a Roman, a wealthier Roman house, what you find when you walk into the atrium is that you'll have these um, wax busts or these wax uh, models of the heads of all of the male um, ancestors of the family. Now, a really illustrious family will have lots of these heads on display in the atrium. So when you walk into the house, the first thing you're greeted by are the ancestors, you, who, who all these great famous men were. Now, what these masks are, they're made of wax. Now, when you bury somebody, when you in their, during, in their funeral, you make a wax uh, mold of their head, a, a wax portrait of their head, and that will be displayed as a part of the funeral procession. But then you take that home and you put it on display and list it underneath uh, the head will be all of their achievements. And so the idea of this is one, to show everybody how illustrious your ancestry is, but also to show the children, especially the boys, this is what you've got to live up to. Not just live up to it, but exceed this. You've got to go even better than this and, and set up your own legacy that is that, that builds on what we've built for you. So for the boys, their job, their obligation in life is to carry on the family name. So therefore, the father's obligation is to educate the boys to do that very thing, not just educate them themselves, but also to, um, to find the right teachers for them to make sure that they're, um, they're brought up, they're, they're mentored and, and educated in a way that is going to carry on that family name. So that's the role of the CEO. He's the head of the company the honor and the dignity of the company is absolutely essential. And so his responsibility is not just to provide for it, but to create a family that brings honor back to himself and establish him and his standing in society. All right, so if the husband is the CEO, then this would make the chief executive officer, then this would make the wife the chief operations officer. She's the one at home. She's the one running the business from home. The house is the the company, it's the factory, it's the office. Someone's got to be running that. And especially someone's got to be looking after the employees who are the children. So that's obviously going to fall onto the responsibility of the wife. She's at home with the children because she's the one making the children. Um, This is is the thing we have to remember. This is a time before daycare and a time before contraception. There's no way of stopping having children. And when you do have them, someone's got to raise them. Well, that is obviously going to fall on the mother because, well, for the simple fact that she has the breasts, she's the one who's going to be raising the children because only she can. Now, this is her job. Now, this isn't, this isn't something that she felt bad about. Having children was the greatest honor that a woman felt. 
in any Asian society, having children is what brought honor to the woman. It was you know, how many times do you see in the Old Testament these women who can't have children and the, the shame that they feel because this is what they feel created to do. They are created to do. Uh, so for the wife to stay at home with the children is what is expected. That is what everybody is doing. One, because they keep getting pregnant because they don't have contraception. And when they do have children, they don't have daycare to send them down to so they can go and pursue their own work. There is no office. There's no job to go to. You don't go down to catch the train to work and somebody else has to look after the children. That's just not something that happens because you work from home. The family business is in the house. So you're at home with the children, with the employees and with the slaves, and you're making sure the house is functioning properly. That's the job. That is what's how you contribute to the business with all of that coming out of the house. So the wives then, who are the wives? Who are the women in the ancient world? Well, one of the, I guess, crucial differences that we find in the ancient world is that there's actually just not that many women. Uh, There's always a shortage of women in the ancient world. And the reason for that is that when a girl is born, when a baby girl is born, the parents will often ask the question, do we keep her? Now, (laughs) Again, in a time when you're living in subsistence level poverty, every mouth to feed is a burden. You, you, when a baby is born, you ask, you are asking the question: If we keep this baby, which which of the other children doesn't get to eat? That's just your everyday reality when you're having children. So, number one, as a when a, when a baby's born, it's a question of whether we can afford to keep it. The second question, especially around a girl, is, well, if we do decide to keep her, how much is that going to cost us in a dowry in 13 years' time? Do we have the money to even front up a dowry for her? Do we have that? Can we, can we invest into a human who is ultimately going to leave the family and start her own business somewhere else? Can we afford to keep her for that long just to hand over a fully functioning working age girl to another family is that something we're willing to invest into the boys are a different story the boys are going to grow up and invest back in the family business the girls aren't going to do that so can we afford that investment do we want to keep this girl so a lot of girls already from birth are going to be exposed in fact a lot of the uh the sex slave trade comes from exposed girls being picked up by pimps to then be taken off to be raised for purposes later on so that's just your already your existence as a female is is a challenge from the day that you're born. Now, then when you grow up, you're going to start to have children. You're going to get married. You're going to start to have children. And from that day forward, your life is at risk again because one in 50 women, and this is a conservative estimate, one in 50 women will die in childbirth. That is just a fact up until really the 1930s. Now, my wife is a midwife and she's has been now for about 10 years never once has there she come home and talked about anything even remotely close to a woman dying giving birth it's just not something that happens in the west i think the statistics now is something like one in ten thousand women will die in childbirth i mean that's the these ultra complicated circumstances for that to happen because we just don't we there's so many procedures by which we can get babies out that, that don't uh, if if the wife if the mother is at any risk whatsoever, it's it, so we just don't consider 
the idea of a woman dying in childbirth. But again, up until about the 1930s, one in 50 women will simply die in childbirth. That's just a, a statistical fact. Now, the reason for this is not that women are incapable or we, the women's bodies just can't get the babies out. That's just that's just not true. The, the female body is one of the most incredible things ever ever made its ability to make and and give birth to children the reason why women are dying in childbirth is because of the hygiene uh you what what will happen will be that a doctor will come over um well certainly this is the, the more modern in more recent history the doctor would go and perform an autopsy and then go and help the woman give birth and between the dead body and the woman's um birthing body there was no soap involved. He just there was no hygiene to go and deal with the germs that you just took out of the dead body. But you got to think about the difficulties or the the hygienic challenges of giving birth on a dirty floor. All right, so these women are are giving birth in these pretty unhygienic conditions, and so it's not the birth itself that's actually causing the death. It's the infection that you pick up uh, that from giving birth that then kills you a few days later. So. That's an unfortunately common feature of being a woman. When a woman finds finds out that she's pregnant, usually it's going to be a couple of months in because there's no ultrasounds to figure it out early on. But as soon as she realizes she's pregnant, the first question she's going to be asking herself is, do I have seven months to live? Do I have eight months to live? Is this it? Is, it, is this how I'm going to die? For every woman, that is going to be the fear. There's going to be some excitement. Hey, I'm going to have a kid. And then that overwhelming sense of fear of this could be what kills me because every person is going to know somebody who has died in childbirth statistically you just are going to know someone a family member or a friend who has died and maybe even your own mother has eventually died through childbirth because you don't ever stop getting pregnant there's no contraception to prevent this from happening so this is their ultimate challenge now, so for these mothers who, the, for the women that do survive, that go on to have children and to raise families, well, her responsibility now primarily, of course, is to raise the children, but then it's also to run the household. Now, what you find on a lot of uh, ancient tombstones, tombstones for women, is that in, in all cases, you're going to put on the tombstone the things for which the person was honored. This was a great person because of all of these different reasons. Now, for a woman, what is typically going to be attributed to her character is her wool working. She was a, she was a faithful wool worker. Now, literally that means wool working, as in working with linen, as in making clothes. Now, Clothing, as we think about clothing today, we go to the shops and we buy clothes. Well, no, that's not how it works in the ancient world because you don't have shops to buy clothes in. Now, what you've got to do is you've got to make the clothes yourself. So it's going to be typical for an ancient woman that she will that they'll own a sheep and that she will shear the sheep and then comb through all of the uh, the wool and then spin the wool into yarn and then use the yarn to make clothing and then perhaps dye the clothing if, if you've got enough money to buy some dye. And then it's your job to keep that linen clean, to keep that, to keep that clothing clean. So every stage of the process, we think about clothing, we don't even have any idea how a pair of jeans is made. We just buy them. 
Well, you're involved in every stage of the process of, of making this clothing and then keeping it clean. In a time before washing machines, that means going down to the river and beating it against, against rocks in order to keep to, in order to clean the one or two items of clothing that you might own anyway. So this is one, one of her roles. Now, I'm guessing that takes a little bit of time. There's quite a bit of work involved just in doing the washing of just having to wash clothes by hand. Um, but what this idea of wool working encompasses is, is all of the household duties. She took care of the house. She took care of the office, the factory, the, the workers, all of that. That was her role in the business. So that involves preparing food. Now, again, every single stage of food preparation is required to be done by the wife or by, by somebody in the household. Now, if you're wealthy, you might have a slave that can take some of these duties for you. And, and many people did have slaves, but ultimately the responsibility falls back on the wife. So think about bread. Now, again, we go down to our local bakery and we spend $3.50 and we buy a loaf of bread. And the bakers have been there since midnight doing that, but that's not our responsibility. We just pay for the loaf of bread. Well, for the wife, she would have to go down to and buy the grain. She would buy grain from the market and then take it up to the baker who would then grind grind the, 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 um, the, the grain into flour. And then she would take that home and she would knead that into a loaf and then she would cook it over a fire, over a pretty primitive um, cooking sauce. And that's how you get bread every day. So you've got to go through the process of making bread every single day as if you can afford to have the grain, then that's, that's how you're making bread. So that's another duty that you're doing. Um, cleaning. Well, we have appliances for absolutely everything. My wife and I are talking about getting a robot vacuum where we don't even have to think about vacuum anymore. This machine just runs around our house and just vacuums even when we're not at home. Uh, everything is done automatically for us now. We don't put time into any of these tasks anymore. In fact, the longest task I have of a day is loading the dishwasher and then press the button and away it goes. And the next morning I've got clean dishes. But again, before these appliances, you've got to do absolutely everything by hand and that just takes time. All of this has time required to it. And then bearing and raising children. We've said so many times, there's no contraception and there's no daycare. You are responsible for raising the children. Now, if you're continually being impregnated, and again, if your children are surviving and the, the survival rate of children is, is horrendous, but you, you can expect that you've got toddlers running around, maybe some older kids, but you'll still have a baby, maybe even pregnant at the same time. There's, you're always making children. And so you're always living in every stage of a child's life, of, a, of uh, all the way from conception right through to, um, to young children. You're looking after all of them whilst doing all of these other duties that are required of you as well, all of the household duties you're doing those things as well as raising children. You've got a baby on the breast and so forth and so forth. So this is stressful. There's a lot going on here in a woman's life, but these jobs have to get done. Somebody just has to do these jobs. Oh, well, why doesn't the husband do it? Well, because he's out there trying to find enough work so that the family's got food to eat. It is a, it's a nice ideal for everybody to stay at home and just enjoy life, but you will die from starvation within a few days because you just don't have any food because no one's out there doing the work. So he's out there doing his thing, busting his gut, trying to find enough work for the family survival, and she's at home making sure there's a family to come home to when he gets home from work of an evening. 
So this is your daily life. This is just how things are. She runs the business. She keeps the books, manages the finances and, and whatever else. And that's it. That's life. That's how ancient families and ancient marriages work. Now, you get some very, very rare examples of some wealthier women who are um, who have enough means to be able to avoid all of this. They don't have to get married. You get, think about, we talked about Lydia a couple of weeks ago, this independently wealthy woman. But these are exceptionally rare cases, very, very rare cases. The majority of women are looking like this. This is how women, this is how families look in the ancient world. And this is certainly how life looks for an ancient wife. Now, I began all of this to ask the question about the New Testament. What, is the, what does the New Testament have to say about wives and women? And is it, ultimately, is it opposed to women? Well, no. It's just this is how things were. <laughs> the way, what the New Testament assumes as being the default of a woman's role is this, because this was the default role. It's not ideological. It's survival. If you don't do these things, we don't survive. So if you want to survive, this is what we have to do. This is how the business has to work. That's it. There's just no choice in the matter. So when we think about Paul's communities, when we think about wives in Paul's churches, this is what we have to imagine. It's not some ideological fantasy of, of autonomy and you know pursuing your own ends. No one thinks that way. And even if you did think that way, there's no practical social means by which you can even live that out. It's not possible for you to go and pursue your own ends because the only ends you have is keep everyone alive, keep the children alive. That's, the, that's what we have to do. And that takes every waking moment of every day, seven days a week for us to do that. That's all we have as an option. And if we don't do that, well, then it all falls apart. So let's just get in and let's get that done. And that's just the way things are. Well, anyway, that's been a, talked a lot about it, about this. Hopefully that's been helpful. But that really sort of sets the basis for what we're going to look at over the next couple of weeks. Because for the New Testament, for, for Paul, this is what is the default assumption. This is just how things function for everybody. But there are points in which the New Testament does flip the script it doesn't change the circumstances for the wife. It doesn't say to the wife, do anything different to what you're normally doing. What it does challenge, however, is the husband. It does say to him, you need to think about this situation differently. You need to bring about some change because in this circumstance as the CEO, you're the one that can bring that change. So what are those changes? What are the sort of the things that Paul is expecting of the husbands? Well, that's what we're going to look at next week. So join me for that. But otherwise, have a great week and I'll see you then. Music